0: Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Laurie Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Pelvic Health Podcast. It's Lori Forner here. We are talking about pelvic organ prolapse today, but in the realms of some really cool research that has been done. um, And we do nerd out a little bit on the PhD research side of things. So I have with me the super lovely Delina Kogbai. Now, I had to have her ...send me a text message with her voice recording in order to work out how to pronounce her last name. And I still don't think I did it very well. So, Delena, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but delena has been a physiotherapist with a special interest in women's health for 17 years in the U.S. and Australia. She graduated from Andrews University in Michigan with a Master's of Physical Therapy and worked in Boise, Idaho, before moving back home to Australia, where she's from. On returning to Australia, she worked in several private practice clinics on the Central Coast and in Sydney. Looking for a new challenge, Delina studied a Master's of Public Health, and this was when she realized her passion of pelvic health education for women living in low-resource settings. Soon after completing the degree, a series of serendipitous events opened up the opportunity to conduct research on pelvic health in Nepal. Now, she also tells us quite a lot about um, how she came to go to Nepal and a lot of the findings from um, their studies, which is really cool. But currently, Delina is a full-time PhD student at the University of Sydney and works part-time at our Tarman physiotherapy sorry if I can't say that right but she does mention that in when we're talking to her a little bit afterwards so she'll say it properly sorry guys Um, and she has special focus on using low level laser therapy for complex pain including pelvic pain so hopefully you guys enjoy some really cool um, research that they conducted and seeing where a lot of the research is going to take us in the world of pelvic work and prolapse so enjoy Okay, so thanks for joining me. I'm so excited because um, there's actually quite a lot that I want to talk to you about, and especially after you sent me your bio and I went, oh, now there's extra stuff that I want to talk to you about. But I think today we will try to focus on your research into pelvic organ prolapse, particularly in the women in Nepal, but if we can start off at, I guess, towards the beginning and how you ended up going down into this PhD world and where you are, because you're, you said you're, is this your third year in your PhD?
1: Uh, It's my fourth year, so my final year.
0: Okay. Yeah. So who, who, where are you? Who are you with and how did you get into this? Well, thank you. And thank
1: you for having me. I'm really delighted to be on your podcast. So I'm a bit fangirling at the moment. (laughs) Thank you a lot. Um, So yeah, it's a real privilege to share a little bit about my research and um, yeah, I've been a physio for a while in private practice with a bit of a special interest in uh, women's health but sort of a generalist uh, musculoskeletal. Um, but I have always been interested in just learning about women that live in, in different situations. So, um, particularly in developing countries and just learning about their experiences, uh, which are in such a contrast to, to my own being, you know, growing up in Australia. Um, so that interest and then along with a few other things, just, you know, sort of opened up um, this opportunity but the biggest thing happened um, when I traveled to Nepal actually with my mum she was volunteering for an organization um, who funded some projects in Nepal and they wanted her to go over and and visit where the money was um, being donated and so she asked if I wanted to go with her and of course I did. So um, we went over together and we were talking with one of the groups over there um, with about the projects that they are doing. And um, they were funding prolapse screening camps, um, which they'd go out into quite remote areas of Nepal and send the word out and women would come in to be screened if they had a prolapse. Um, So I was just asking them a little bit about that, what did it mean, and um, the purpose of the camps were predominantly for those women that needed surgery, so those severe cases, Um, but they were also, for some of them, um, putting in a, a ring pessary, and then I was asking them a bit about, do you provide any education as well? So um, they gave me this uh, leaflet that they would give to women um, who just needed conservative sort of strategies to manage their symptoms. And so I was looking at this leaflet and it was obviously in Nepali so I couldn't read it but there were some illustrations on it. Um, And so I was looking at it I was thinking, "I I think this is describing like pelvic floor muscle exercise. And so I was asking them, um, what does this say and what is it describing? And they said, yeah, this is the pelvic floor. They call it Kegels. This is the Kegels exercise that we teach women. And I was looking at it and the actual picture was of a woman lying supine doing a double leg lift and that was the Kegels. And I just thought, oh my goodness yeah what what is this and um yeah where did this come from and uh, so I asked a bit more detail about it and they said yeah this is how we teach kegels and um I thought okay that's interesting <laughs> um and uh this group had a, a group of health workers that would go out into the remote communities um providing a lot of education for women and And so they were trained in this way of teaching women to do their pelvic floor muscle exercise. So talking with them a bit more, I um, suggested that perhaps I could um, come back and train their health workers with a little bit more depth and detail about the pelvic floor muscles and and the correct way that you would actually teach someone to, to do the exercises Um, And they loved that idea. So I ended up going back to Nepal a couple months after that trip and was able to do two separate training um, workshops for their health workers um, teaching. We went into a lot more detail about anatomy and function and what the causes of prolapse and then some of the lifestyle things that affect it. Um, But then a lot more detail about pelvic floor muscle exercise Um, But before I would start the training, I would ask them, you know, how do you teach women to do the exercise? So I'd get a few to volunteer and and come up and show. And um, some of those examples were definitely the supine double leg lift was the most common one I saw. But also they would stand there and um, hold their breath, suck in their tummy and count to ten. That was another way they were taught um, and then uh, to actually stop start the flow of urine Um, another one was putting your hand between your knees and squeezing your knees together like an adductor type squeeze Um, and another was just you know squeezing your your glutes so a big bottom squeeze Um, but out of all the this the people that I asked none of them really kind of knew Uh, the correct way on how to do these exercises. And so um, then that just got me thinking, you know, is this sort of how they're all taught or where did this come from? And perhaps, you know, I can develop some training materials and a new leaflet that, you know, will give more accurate information. Um, So when I came back to Australia, I... um, Emailed a few people and they connected me with um, one of my supervisors who, um, yeah, just got me excited and on that journey of starting a PhD. Um, So that was yeah three years ago I think now and um, it started from there. But um, my supervisor somehow arranged for me to go and meet um, Professor Deets. And um, I went out to Nepean um, and I was telling him about what I wanted to do. And this is me as a, you know, very naive <laughs> first-year PhD student thinking I'm going to solve, you know, all these problems and have these amazing interventions <laughs> and everything. And he just was like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you have to understand, like, what what's the problem? Like, what what is their functional pelvic floor anatomy? And... You know just going over and teaching these things might not be what they actually need, and at the time I was kind of like, oh, a bit deflated, but um, also thought, well, yeah, he's probably right. But um, he had a student who is also a um, a PhD student who's a um, gynecologist, and she was looking for some more projects, so. We actually um, collaborated and um, part of my research ended up going over and doing the 4D trans um, labial ultrasound so we could understand um, what the actual functional anatomy is for Nepali women um, which ended up being um, so worthwhile and in hindsight I just feel so blessed that that chance meeting. Um, led me to meet his student, um, Freon Terrell, and the work we did together. And then, you know, it ended up shaping my PhD to be something quite different than what I naively kind of jumped into. Um, So, yeah, that was really great. And um, so I ended up sort of doing two parts of my PhD where the first part was going and doing the um, 40 real-time ultrasound. Um, so Freyan and I went over to Kathmandu Model Hospital and we just um, were able to screen all the women attending an outpatient gynecology clinic.
0: Um, and and what, what kind of things were you looking at? Were you looking at um, pelvic floor morphology or organ descent or both? Or
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, we did a few questionnaires. Um, and then uh, the POPQ, modified Oxford scale and then um, <clears throat> the ultrasound, um, we're looking at rest, full pelvic floor muscle contraction and uh, full Valsalva um, and with that data we've been able to do a lot of different measurements and assessments, so hiatal area and um, yeah, organ descent. Uh, and I'm looking at pelvic floor muscle thickness as well, and looking at that in regards to um, pop stage and strength. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of different sort of measurements you do offline later once you've got Are that. Are you
0: doing the offline analysis or is she doing it all? Um,
1: Freyan did most of it. Okay, I'm like, oh, um, that's so much work. She's very thick. Yeah, but um, I went back and did the hiatal area and the pelvic floor muscle thickness, um, rest and contraction, so just a little bit, but it was a whole, I'd I'd never even experienced that before, so that was really great to be a part of that and see and learn from someone really experienced in that area. Um, So yeah, that was really worth doing, I think, and makes a lot of sense to have that Understanding before you coming in, and you know, trying to do interventions of um, knowing what the real problem is for them.
0: So, did you work anything out with all of that, or yeah. what did you find?
1: Yeah. So, um, so the results of the ultrasound. So, um, Freyan has written two papers um, with the data that she's assessed um, for her PhD. So um, really interestingly, um, so yes, they have a high prevalence of prolapse. So that was, you know, one of the reasons of looking into this, like, why is that the case? And so that was confirmed that they, they did have a high prevalence.
0: Sorry. And when you say high prevalence, is that like um, greater than or equal to stage two? Or is it specific? Are you using like the cutoffs with centimeters or what?
1: Yeah, so um, Freon was looking at significant prolapse. So, um, yeah. Um, So, uh, but she found that um, 60% had a retroverted uterus, and then that was associated with having a uterine prolapse. Um,
0: And these are all women, Paris women?
1: Yes. Okay. So um, one of the problems we had, and it is a big problem, is that we couldn't assess nulliparous women, Mm -hmm. and that was due to some cultural sort of factors. And I think we had three um, women who were nulliparous Mm -hmm. and married Mm -hmm. that attended the clinic. So we got a few, but ideally we really needed a lot of nullips to understand what is, you know, normal, I guess, um, prior to giving birth. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, our results still have to be taken with a grain of salt um, in, in not knowing, yeah, what, what happens before pregnancy and childbirth. Um, so, yeah, they had um, this, yeah, that, this retroverted uterus and they had a, a very, very low percentage of any defect so only 2% had a, had a unilateral levator avulsion and only 2% had a significant external anal sphincter defect, which is the lowest um, sort of prevalence kind of um, study uh, out there with that's been done in different populations. So it's really interesting that they have a yeah, high rate of prolapse, which is often associated with the defects, um, but they
0: have very minimal
1: um, trauma or defect in the, the muscle.
0: So did you come up with any theories as to why that might be?
1: Um, so none of them had any intervention as far as instrumental deliveries. So they, um, there were a few C-sections, but this is out of the vaginal um, delivery. So yeah. Yeah. no instruments, um, generally a low birth weight for the baby. Mm-hmm. And typically um, the women are younger at the age of their first delivery. So they're closer to when um, they first have their period. So being in that younger age group. I was
0: thinking 25, but that's like cuz in here young to have babies is 2025 20, so are you yeah. thinking are you saying 15 16
1: no um i think it was actually 21 oh. but they they i think they um first the average age of sort of getting their period is a little bit older okay. to like maybe 16 um so they're still sort of in that 5 year kind of age group so yeah not young young but younger than australia i guess in regards to that um so yeah there's some theories but we still don't really know you know exactly what what is going there but in regards to sort of the physio side of it um they were just they had very strong and well functioning pelvic floor muscles like you know an average of a three Um, modified oxford scale and they were able to contract and relax they just with that you know digital palpation and cueing them they knew what to do and on the ultrasound measurements they're these beautiful thick strong muscles without
0: doing pelvic floor exercise programs
1: yeah exactly so you know what why is that also and um you know potentially my my theory which we still don't really know is that um, these women are like very physically active and from a young age they are lifting incredibly heavy things and um, you know as young as 12 they're lifting these huge big containers of water and carrying them for a kilometer and heavy things of um, wood for the fire and, and they're from these straps you know from their head and um, I like, had a
0: picture on a, a social media site mm-hmm. I don't remember if it was Twitter or Instagram and you yeah. had the strap around your head with the yeah. water bucket yeah
1: it was wow. it was an empty basket yeah. but just the coordination of holding and balancing yeah. from your forehead and then it had
0: no weight in it but Do you know what kind of weights they were carrying like the um, metrics like how much
1: I don't know. I think the water containers are at about fifty liters, and a, a full one I couldn't even lift it off the ground. Like I, I couldn't even budge it off the ground. And they're carrying it, you know, on their back from a head strap. So for a long um, period of time, and they do it for, yeah, long periods of time, and just um, every day, young age, every single day. So there's no no days off for these women, and I think that. You know and then it ultimately comes down to this sort of gender discrimination and and bigger socio-cultural issues because largely the women do you know like 80% of the household chores every single day Um, and men will often travel um, internationally to get paid work so they'll go and do labouring or work on farms and um, which leaves the woman home alone with the children and the goats and every day having to get the water and the wood and the goat feed and it's just non-stop so um, that heavy 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 work so potentially that is building up muscle strength so they might be quite strong muscularly but obviously all that heavy loading was going to be putting that downward pressure through the connective tissue and fascia and,
0: However, but you didn't get to measure many nulliparous women. Out yeah. of the few that you measured, even though there was only a very small number, did they have increased organ descent?
1: Um, I don't know off the top of my head, um, but the other, the other side of this, this ultrasound study was it was in an urban hospital Mm. so the women were even you know less likely to do the really heavy lifting and particularly so if these were younger um, married women um, things have really changed a lot for the compared to the older generation women that are living more in these remote rural communities so um, so it'd be different again, I think, if if we were able to do the ultrasound study, but in the more remote communities.
0: Yeah, these women, once they have a baby, like they have to lift and carry and do all of that stuff every day. I'm assuming yeah. they don't get like their six weeks of relaxing after having a baby. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. So
0: the other side of it, they're
1: looking at just reproductive health and family planning and um, yeah, the the postnatal period, um, they will they will have often a couple weeks where they they say they rested, and often it's the mother-in-law who will come in and and support them initially with the new baby and helping out a bit. Um, but then, yeah, I mean the work has to be done. The goats have to be fed every day. The children have to be fed. So. You know, you you just don't. You can't have that luxury of laying around and letting somebody else do that heavy heavy work. So, yeah, there's not the rest. So they're doing the heavy lifting while pregnant, and then pretty soon after delivery, they're having to do it. Um, and some of these communities, um, they may not have access to contraception, so the family planning. So that decreases birth spacing, so that they may not have allowed their body to recover before falling pregnant again, um, and yeah, all of all of those things make for a very complicated. <laughs> Um, issue with unfortunately no real easy fix
0: <laughs> Do they? How many kids do they generally have? Like on average would they have more like here I want to say two or three but I have lots of friends with four and five now uh, but yeah. how many kids do they generally have? Yeah
1: so again I think the older generation did have you know the six the eight you know occasionally the twelve um, oh. but yeah and, and it's it's really hard doing some of these interviews and reading them because they'll, you know, they always ask how many, you know, babies did you deliver, but then how many are alive Mm. and not, they've lost a few, um, along the way, which is, you know, just feels so sort of common there. Um, but again, in the younger generation, so in the urban settings, it, um, it was only, you know, an average of two to three children. So, um, I think things are definitely changing but, um, but it, yeah, it's that difference between accessibility in the urban area where they can go to the doctor and get contraception and talk about family planning versus those in remote communities they don't even have a local doctor or they have to walk three or four hours to the nearest health outpost um, and that, that'll that have a nurse or a paraprofessional kind of person there who can kind of screen them, but then know if they need to be sent on to to a major hospital centre. So um, it's that accessibility, and that's really where my heart is in, in this PhD, was like, how do we help these women that are just so far from everything and just don't have that accessibility to health services? And, you know, we know all of our studies that have been done on pelvic floor muscle training they're largely Caucasian women they're largely well educated they're in an urban setting you know they've had the the intervention will be you know often one-on-one physiotherapy once a week for 6 weeks and then you know all all this intervention which is amazing and should be the gold standard for every single woman but for many it's just not accessible and even for challenges in having that kind of access to you know that intervention so um, you know it's, it's not just a developing world thing but how do we help them when, when they can't necessarily get that one-on-one assessment and intervention um, that's tailored to their specific needs then how do we still reach them or at least try and offer some help? And and so that, I guess, led me to the second part of my PhD, um, which initially I was just going to develop a leaflet um, that was, you know, uh, one that was more evidence-based to the ones I initially saw, um, describing, you know, some of the conservative uh, strategies for managing prolapse. And so I and um, it's it's come a long way. It's been quite a humbling experience, but um, you know with starting off and going well what do what do they understand about the anatomy or the pelvic floor, and where do we sort of reach them initially?" Um, so I did a little bit of formative work, just a few qualitative interviews, just asking some basic questions about what they understood. Um, and all of them had heard of a prolapse and knew a, a little bit about what what that was um but none of them were aware that there was this muscle group, the pelvic floor muscles, or hadn't heard how to exercise them or and so then you think, well, how do you illustrate this in a piece of paper that's going to make sense to someone who you know may not have ever gone to school, doesn't really understand you know anatomy' how do you illustrate it in a two-dimensional picture that's going to make any sense for them? And so initially I'd drawn some like cartoons, they're so basic, and I was showing them and like, you know, it just made no sense to them. And uh, and so I remember uh, we were asking one of them, I had a translator obviously, and I was like, you know, what would you change about this? Do you have any ideas to improve it? What would you change? And this lady was just like, everything. <laughs> like yeah okay that's probably fair um so it kind of yeah it morphed from that into going okay well it's probably help more helpful if we upskill these local health workers so um in most health outposts they have auxiliary nurse midwives and um they've usually done a six-week sort of training course um and they can deliver babies and uh Provide contraception, some immunizations um, and so they're the one I think they might even be able to assess for a prolapse Um, they're at least aware of it Um, and so I thought well maybe if we provide some sort of training and education at that level and then they can reach the women and, and provide the education verbally and Um, so from there we've made a flip chart so it's it's images on the front and then on the back it has all the information so the health worker can read it if they want to um, while the woman can look at the picture and um, and apart so the information we got from the ultrasound that um, we realized you know they actually do not need pelvic floor muscle exercise. Their muscles are strong. They're well functioning. You know, this this in my initial naivety where I thought I was just going to help so many women, um, having them go and doing their little exercise. I was like, no, this so that is not entirely appropriate. Maybe for some. Um, So then I've I've just broadened it to include more um, lifestyle information, the typical sort of risk factors around pelvic floor disorders and and prolapse. Um, So we've developed a flip chart and my final study, which I'm in the middle of doing, is a randomized control trial. And so we've got the control group doing usual care, which is usually just a brief sort of five minutes description of go and do your kegels um, as as they are being taught over there at the moment.
0: Is this in, sorry, postpartum or? Um. So this is
1: women with a symptomatic prolapse. Okay, yeah. Yeah, stage one to three, they're stage two. Okay. Um, so, the control group and then the intervention is going through the full flip chart with all the education and then, um, so then we've done the uh, quality of life and symptom scale at baseline and then uh, six, 12 weeks and six months, so... Hopefully, we'll have all the data collected by the end of this year. For so that. Were
0: you are you also looking at POPQ and transperineal ultrasound within that RCT?
1: So ideally, that's what we wanted. Um, so because we, these were women coming to a reproductive health fair uh, that they have in, in rural communities. So once a month or so. Um, doctors from the urban hospital will go out to these outposts and all the women are told about it so they can come in and get their reproductive health needs met and um, anything that they want checked by a doctor so there are women coming for all different reasons but they get screened for a prolapse Um, and then those with stage 4 are then sent on for surgery which is why they're doing these camps Um, and then those that weren't were then coming into the study. Uh, so they, I forget what the question is now.
0: As in, will, the, will the RCT oh, yeah. involve being able to objectively measure?
1: Yes, good question. So, in a perfect world, all of the women would come back for at least the pop cue, if anything, um, and, and the modified Oxford scale, we did that as well. So, yes ideally that would be perfect but to get these women to come back is almost nearly impossible and like when because I was there in January to observe the the first few and just for them to leave their house for half a day is a huge ask like a lot of them would be like I've got rice on the fire I need to go home it's cooking and you know like their their days every minute is accounted for so just to attend one of these things is, is a huge ask Um, and we wouldn't be able to necessarily um, do it back in that outpost. So it would be asking them to come into Kathmandu. So we are going to try and we'll offer them sort of an incentive to come into Kathmandu Model Hospital. Um, So it'll be a whole day and they'll probably even have to sleep over a night and just to get in there and to be reassessed and the time um but we'll offer them a bit of an incentive and i i'm hoping we will get some um but the likelihood it, even if it's just a small sub sample it would be really nice to see any change yeah in in modified scale and pop q if anything but
0: especially if you're saying that the results that you've looked at so far that their pelvic floor muscles are actually good
1: yeah yeah so yeah yeah if there any change yeah and so oh, i don't know you you get to this point and you you know, you're so far and deep down this road, but um, the reality is, and if I'm being totally realistic, I don't assume this will make a big difference. So what what might change is those co-occurring symptoms. So a lot of them do have a bit of urinary incontinence, or so they might be a bit constipated. Um, so those kind of symptoms perhaps we might see a change. But in regards to prolapse
0: symptoms, um,
1: you know, I'm not that hopeful we'll see much of a change in, the, in that specifically.
0: But that's still really important information because a lot of the times people will blame everything on pelvic floor muscles and forget that connective tissue plays a big role in pelvic organ support. Yes. And I know <laughs> pelvic floor muscles also help but... There's a threshold where they can't help anymore because they're doing as much as they can. Exactly, exactly. And it's a huge learning curve for me. Um,
1: And, yeah, coming into it with this little, like, physio kind of, yeah, get them strong, it'll solve everything. But even just, you know, working with Freon, who's a gynecologist, and they look at it all from the (laughs) fashion. Yeah. (laughs) It's like we've just had so many discussions, but I just learnt so much from her and, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's complicated and I still don't think we really understand particularly prolapse.
0: Um, well, not a lot of the research goes that way because all the research tends to go to incontinence, which is why yeah. I was extremely happy to hear that you were studying <clears throat> prolapse because, yeah. you know, if if there's research looking at prolapse, it tends to be surgical techniques, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, most of, you know, funding and, you know, a lot of the research tends to go to incontinence because it's more prevalent yeah. condition. Yeah. Yeah. But we still need to look at these other ones.
1: Yeah, and talking about, like, funding and surgery. So um, they've, they've done this really great work in Nepal where they identified a problem and the government identified prolapse as being a burden for women Um, And then they've got all this funding. So the funding has gone to these screening camps and then forced surgery. So there's a big focus on that. So, And I understand, let's help those with the most severe symptoms. And it makes a lot of sense, like, let's help them. Um, Because there is
0: the extra side where, um, as far as I have heard, that it's not just that these women have these severe symptoms. It then... Um, affects their position within their culture and i think there's a lot more repercussions socially than there is in our world here in the western world definitely
1: um so yeah and and again with the older generation but it's not uncommon to be for women to be physically abused if if they have these symptoms or if they're leaking urine or have a smelly discharge then um you know that's a lot of Um, stigma for them and embarrassment that and they can't just go down to the chemist or go to the GP and just you know have a look at it and and get it resolved but a husband might take another wife or um, yeah there's definitely violence that can happen or even emotional abuse and so they have that fear Um, Mm. because we know like globally women do not seek help for these, these things we know that in Australia every Um, But then when you've got this fear of like, oh, my husband might leave me or, um, you know, might get ridiculed by my mother-in-law and you know that these women cannot sustain without their husband and their extended family. Like there's just no physical way they can survive. Um, There's that extra burden of like, you know, barriers for them to get the help they need and it's just... Yeah, it's really, it's heavy. And I, I've just, it's been like a huge privilege to have a tiny glimpse into some of these women's lives and and it's not lost on me that I've had this, you know, really beautiful um, time of, of hearing their stories and being a tiny bit of, you know, of their day-to-day. But, um, yeah, there was one lady who came to a screening camp and she was telling my my friend who was translating um, she was 65, and she had never gone to a doctor her whole life. And she had heard, because when you go to these rem- remote communities and you're you're white, um, the word gets out and everyone kind of wants to come and see, they, you know, they think I'm a white doctor, so they're like, you've got to go see the white doctor lady. Um, so she had snuck out of the house to specifically come and see me. Um, And she was worried that if her husband knew that he'd beat her. And she was saying she'd never been to a doctor her whole life. She had nine children who were grown up now and um, had, yeah, birthed them at home. And it's just such an extreme way of life when you can, you know, you think about as an Australian woman, I've had every single opportunity for my reproductive health like this thing. Anything that I've wanted to I could just walk down the road and it's right there and you contrast that To these beautiful women who are so gracious They're thanking me and I just feel like I've done nothing, but they are so gracious, and it's Just that contrast which it's really hard to to reconcile that just where you're born shapes you know your whole and as a woman your whole reproductive life it's just so much shaped by where you live and in what community. But anyway, I digress a little bit, sorry.
0: I don't know <laughs> how you leave.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, – Nepali people are just some of the most just gentle-spirited, just gracious people. Like they've just – all the, the research people that have helped me um, just go above and beyond with such this beautiful spirit – and um, like in January, I was at a screening camp, and we had to get the bus at six in the morning. And the, there were doctors there who were saw. I think in five hours, they saw like 130 women. There was maybe four or five of them. So it's just literally in and out, in and out all day. And at the end of the day, like I was literally just watching them, and I'm exhausted. <laughs> and um, I'm like, "Oh, are you guys tired?" And they're like no, I'm fine. And they're like, let's go, let's take hike. And I'm like, what? (laughs) to show me like this beautiful temple up the top of the hill at the end of this massive day. And they're like, we want to show you, come on. And so we went on this hike and they're just like singing and laughing. and, And I'm just thinking, wow, like, yeah, it's humbling to see, you know, this way of life that they just, they're just such beautiful people. And yeah, it's a good lesson to learn sometimes when I'm complaining about, you know, my my small issues of poor internet connection.
0: I know, I know. I know. I know. You need the perspective. Yeah.
1: But, um, yes, I don't know where we were. I'm sorry. Oh, well,
0: no, I was actually thinking, too, about... Um, you were talking about what you would have liked to have done with the RCT and Mm. I find, you know, now that I'm doing research, I can look at what people are doing or papers out there that you would look at and go, well, why didn't they look at that? Why didn't they do that? And you're like, well, actually, you know what, they probably did think about doing it and they just couldn't. Or, you know, time and funding and resources and it's not always, you don't always get to exactly what you want to do and that would be perfect
1: exactly and you do learn that once you start trying to do research for yourself you've got these big dreams and ideas but unfortunately it's feasibility like can it and you, you know when you're a student you're like I am just me like one person I'm not part of this huge international research group that you know can get thousands of participants I'm one person and I can only do what I can do, and you know. And you can look back and go, "Oh, there's so many things I would do so differently now." But I'm constantly told that's what a PhD so, so, is. Isn't
0: that the point? Aren't we? We have our L's. Is that what yeah. it is? L's yeah. or Ps? One, I think it's still yeah. an L. I feel
1: like it's L's yes. still <laughs> me, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. You learning to do research doesn't mean you have to be like perfect at it, but yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a big learning curve along the way. As, as you know, are you
0: feeling that same way? Oh, my goodness, yes. I was, remember I messaged you the other day about stats. I'm like, I have 4,000 rows of data that I have to do something with, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> I have to somehow oh use no. some statistical software program. Um, so, yes, it's... There's, there's still lots of hurdles and trying to plan physiological studies and wanting to look at so many things but then realizing that you can't or, again, the funding side of things. I haven't yeah. even gone into applying for funding, which at some point I need to do, but that whole world okay. seems like it is another yeah. area.
1: Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And sometimes I feel like my PhD really is, how to google stuff like i can't imagine doing a phd pre-internet days like you have to go to the library and like look at a book i'm like the things we have at our fingertips now i'm, I'm looking up the definition of words and yeah different stats things and you just google oh, Ah, yeah. i google
0: excel all the time like yeah, right I- now i have um 4000 data entry of height but when we set up our original survey we didn't have a tick box for centimeters like for metrics so everyone's yeah. written it down differently and used different abbreviations and excel is getting yeah. too confused so i've got to go through it individually one by one and change things i think so oh, that's fun yeah all those those fun things but yeah. so when you then, so when you finish next, will be the end of this year or next year? Um, I hope to
1: submit early next year. Okay, yeah.
0: so you submit it, then you have to do, like a a verbal component. Uh, no, it, it's
1: not required in at Sydney Uni. Yeah, I don't like know.
0: If it's UQ ch- UQ just changed, and it, ah. you now do have to do an oral oh. as well. Oh. Um, but then once you're done, what are you going to do? Because you still have all these other questions.
1: I know. I know. (laughs) I just,
0: yeah, I feel like I'm just beginning, but
1: um, yeah, I I do have a lot of ideas and I've got, I've got people that I've met now that are all super excited and want to do things. But again, it's like, it's funding and it's, and it's life. Like how do you, how do you Mm. do them that, you know, that you're able to sustain it? But Um, Yeah, Freon actually has got ethics to do the same ultrasound study in India. Um, So yeah, we might be able to go and do that. So she's got family over there we could stay with so fairly inexpensively. So that would be really interesting. Um, And then another uh, physio I've um, met in Sweden, Jenny Wickford has her PhD and very similar interest to me. Um, she wants to do a similar educational kind of program for women in Pakistan. Wow. So we're just seeing if we can align with Aga Khan University there um, that we can maybe do, yeah, similar sort of program educating the health workers and the community mm. women about, yeah, well, first, I mean, now we understand we've got to see what the need is before mm. you yeah, jump in with what you think they need. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really work like that, but... Um, yeah, and uh, she's got an organisation called Nura Wellbeing, um, which I'm gonna sort of help her with, and hopefully together we can keep doing sort of these kind of similar projects. So, I think yeah, both both of our passions are around that sort of health literacy, health education, empowering people um, by upskilling and providing them. You know with information about conservative things that they can do to manage their health and whether that's for pelvic floor disorders or other health topics as well um so yeah, I amazing.
0: Is that gonna is that another PhD or a postdoc or what does that then become?
1: Well, I don't know. I've just been having these discussions with people because I don't really know. What, oh, you don't know either. <laughs> what happens? Yeah. What do you do? What's the name of it? Yeah. So yeah. apparently it's like a, yeah, postdoc or a research fellow or. Oh yes. Okay. Um. Yeah. So ideally, I do actually really like working clinically, and I like to do that. Part time, and I see that as sort of funding my life, and yes. then part time, whether that's yeah within a postdoc or I I'd like that. So I, I would even like to maybe teach a little bit at a university and just be in that world still, yeah. um, in some sort of capacity. But
0: so even do doing that. all the stuff that you've done, you haven't been turned off the research world. Good to hear.
1: Well. <laughs> Yeah, I think part-time I could handle it. I think full-time you get a bit caught up in in some of those things that, yeah, I think a nice mix of clinical and academic would be quite nice. But, um, yeah, I I don't know exactly what that looks like.
0: (laughs) So you said you're working at a private practice musk clinic, is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so you do musculoskeletal and pelvic health combined?
1: Yeah, yeah yeah a big mix of everything
0: yeah yeah where are you in sydney as in like where is your clinic
1: if the clinic you... in Artarmon on the north shore okay it's near chatswood area.
0: It, it, can you send me a link and i can put that on yeah. the page if anybody wants to find you are you happy for people to contact you if they want more information yeah and how Definitely. does it work yeah i love with um so you have your you have some publications ooh yeah if um people cuz the that whole now you know the the paywalls and that's another you know that's a whole yeah. other world if they yeah. would like full access and they don't have full access are they can yeah. they contact you to get full access or is that oh, like yeah. illegal
1: no i think if you're the author okay. you can give it to one person You just can't publicly, like, post it. I might be wrong, but I think I can share it with one person if they emailed me privately or something.
0: So if you you get 100 people email you privately. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: I don't know how that all works. I probably should care more about it, but um, I know, yeah. And I think when you're a clinician first... Like for me, I'm like, I just want my stuff out there. I don't really care if it's like the lowest impact journal or, and if it's, you know, if it's open access, that's great. And I'm not fussed by, yeah, what, who, whatever journal it is, but um, I know that it does actually really matter, but.
0: um, Well, I think people reading it from our end of non-research based, like clinicians, you don't. I mean, you might recognize the journal name, but it's not a big deal. It's just that you have access to be able to read something. Yeah, that's what I think, anyway. But,
1: yeah, anyway, that's that's a whole other thing.
0: And <laughs> Oh, well, that's so exciting. Thank you so much for sharing some insight into what you've been looking at, and hopefully you'll be able to um, come back and tell us more about more things that you find out.
1: Yeah, yeah, hopefully. It's... um it is a big learning curve but as yeah as you know but um it's it's exciting and it's and it's challenging and in a way you know it's nice that things just didn't turn out exactly how I'd expected from the beginning it does make it more interesting and Mm. and that's life right it's um you can never sort of box things into things being so simple It, it is complicated and um, that's as a clinician you understand that it, it's not a one size fits all kind of thing and, and I guess you know if we're thinking about an Australian context or whatever country you're in you know we do have women um, that have come from all different countries that you know some of these things that we're learning about Nepali women might even apply um, to other women that have um, you know lived and grown up in different cultural context so um yeah it's good to keep these things in mind as well when we're assessing women and understanding a bit about their background and yeah yeah, the differences yeah
0: excellent thank you so much